0: Hi The uh, the Guardian's John Harris has a, an article on the supposed Sunak-Johnson split that a lot of people have identified in the Tory party It's not obvious whether Harris wants to say there genuinely is a split or whether um, they're agreed but there's a a kind of good cop bad cop uh, act in operation where Johnson pretends to be in favour of something that he isn't in favour of in order to continue the showman act uh, that was so successful in 2019 so it's not it's not clear whether Harris thinks there really is a, a division in the cabinet between uh, Johnson on the one hand and Sunak on the other and uh, and between some of the ministers who support each of them um, or whether he thinks in actual fact the Tory party is being devious in the way that it often is and is presenting itself as uh, as one thing while being something different. The context is a, a budget and spending review coming up on Wednesday, I'm recording this on Monday and uh, on the 27th on Wednesday there's a spending review budget statement. It used to be quite clear what each of these things meant um, but the the distinction between various kinds of financial statements by the Chancellor has been uh, obliterated as have a lot of the rules that used to apply. Uh, If you watch old tapes uh, and old news broadcasts you'll often see uh, the Treasury will have lines on the floor uh, for budget cleared staff Uh, and if you're not budget cleared then you can't cross the line because so much of what they deal with is market sensitive information. Now I think it was Norman Lamont, uh, or I think Lamont the other day. One of the former chancellors was saying that uh, routinely now things are announced before the budget um, that would have got you sacked or somebody would have somebody's head would have rolled um, in in previous uh, eras. So uh, the context as I say is this is this spending review that's going to set the context for um, the uh, the winter period and the inevitable NHS crisis, whatever sooner announces, but we have NHS spending um and uh, care home spending and uh, spending for the local authorities um in order to help them deal with the inevitable crisis it'll never be enough it'll be it'll be revisited as soon as we're into december january and uh, and the winter crisis happens as usual um and uh, the the suggestion would be not enough was spent so the labour party thinks harris are going to look at this uh, performance on wednesday and try to divine what it is that prevents them winning because of course they're in a state of disarray. The, uh, their own conference was a complete disaster. Uh, the Tory conference was successful by contrast. Johnson did his, uh, his humorous act and loads of references to various things and got laughs out of the delegates and it was well reported. And Labour has become um, something quite different from what it used to be. It's become a party of middle-class graduates uh, that Blair uh, managed to attract but it's also become a party of younger graduates who haven't achieved middle class status but have joined the party after the had Miliband reforms and uh, and they, inspired by a kind of soft Marxism, uh, favoured Corbyn and his agenda and now the party's been left uh, without an obvious constituency because the Tories have taken the, the so-called red wall um and uh, they of course retain the support of those who could never vote for anybody else aside from the challenge that brexit reform ukip represented in the tory constituencies aside from that the tory party doesn't have challengers in the way that the labor party does Um, so the labor party faces uh, always the possibility of splits like the sdp split back in the 1980s and they always face the possibility of a, a more rever- revolutionary group within the party seizing control of candidate nomination uh, and leadership uh, elections. So Labour's in, in a bad place. Uh, the party is essentially status. It's a party of the, the public sector middle classes, the doctors, the teachers, the lecturers. It's no longer a party of organised labour in the private sector um, and the, uh, the Tory party has managed to uh, be, uh, as it always is, to some degree shape-shifting and fluid and able to respond uh, to events, and reinvent itself because the Tory party fundamentally just wants to resist the radical change to the status quo that the Labour Party at its worst represents. And even when the Labour Party doesn't represent a radical change, what the Tory party wants is to occupy office um, because it's enough of an institution um, to retain that desire for office divorced from any particular political beliefs. So the Tory party um, isn't, isn't ever prepared to lose for the sake of ideas. It, you can you can argue that was false when it came to the European Union, but that's suppose that's the that's the exception that proves the rule. The Tory party had people in it, both on the Remain side and on the Leave side, who were prepared to lose for the sake of an idea and give up office and uh, and see a disaster. But I suppose, as I say, that's the exception that proves the rule. By and large, the Tory party wants to resist Labour attempts at change, and even if Labour doesn't represent change, it wants to occupy office because. In those circumstances, they don't actually believe in anything much uh, that would cause them to pack up their camp and, and go home. Um, there are people in the, on the Labour left um, who, if they can't get what they want, will go and do something else. There are not many people in the Tory centre who would ever do that. The Tory centre wants to occupy office even if to do nothing, and even if it doesn't represent a genuine difference from a, a centrist Labour party like Blair's. So that so the Tory Party is is this grand institution and able to reinvent itself just enough to exclude Labour, um, if it possibly can. And as Harris points out, at least on the face of it, it's far more um, able to bring in, for example, prominent members of the ethnic minorities and put them in front bench positions, uh, have women leaders in the way that the Labour Party hasn't managed. So the uh, the, the Tory Party has been quite successful in uh, in pitching uh, to the to the electorate and uh, it's got a, it's got a sensitivity. Matthew Paris, I always quote Matthew Paris's remark about Nicholas Bonser. Nicholas Bonser, the, the big old uh, Tory MP, now dead I think, I haven't checked, but Bonser um, was described by Matthew Paris as like being a barge on the Thames. Uh, the barge is a perfect predictor of the direction of the tide. The tide comes in, the barge inclines one way, the tide goes out, the barge inclines the other. The barge doesn't know how it knows the direction of the tide it just does and nicholas bonzer knows the mood of the tory party and um, and the tory party in its turn knows the mood of the country in a way that sometimes labor is deaf to um, sometimes uh labor doesn't realize uh, that it's going to get a hammering uh, there were people in 2019 who genuinely believed that the pitch was going to work and it came as a bit of a shock i think same in 2015 uh they i don't think they quite believed that the uh the Cameron's Conservatives could actually get, I think, 331 seats and win a majority. So now that the the Tory Party has taken the Red Wall, probably because of short term um, characteristics of of the Brexit debate, and um, because of the, uh, the the three years of parliamentary uh, shenanigans, disgusted the working class and infuriated them uh, because it represented everything they hated about um, middle class chatter. Um, the uh, the, the 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 spectacle of parliament um, debating how many angels danced on the head of a pin um, the Labour Party and the SNP against a deal against no deal but continually voting against every deal uh, that infuriated the working class and the Tory party therefore won and now that they have won for that particular reason uh, there's an incentive to try to keep the red wall and that's led to all this talk about infrastructure spending and a kind of more pro-statist um Tory party than there was before all this talk about inclusive growth uh, and once the COVID pandemic is out of the way and the the, the short-term frictional problems caused by brexit then we're going to have uh, a, a so-called leveling up now one of the problems is that all of this is meant to be consistent with this um, commitment to net zero I think by 2050 and that's one of the major bones of contention that exists between Johnson and Sunak because Johnson doesn't really believe in the limitations uh, that spending imposes and Sunak, being an investment banker, does. So there's been um, some division over how quickly they could possibly move to net zero because Sunak, as I say, being a banker, knows that a country like an enterprise doesn't become rich by destroying its balance sheet. The balance sheet is where all your assets are held um, and the profit and loss account shows the... uh, the day-to-day expenditure and the revenue coming in the sales coming in uh, and the uh, the bills getting paid and then what you're left and the trouble with net zero and uh, a green new deal and green investment Um if you've got a working truck um, and you invest in a different kind of truck and scrap the old one um you've not gained anything in order for the, the new truck to make any kind of sense it has to be better than the old one such as to have the consequences of that um, superiority represent themselves in the uh, in the profit and loss account. So Sunak, being smart enough to understand, uh, more than smart enough to understand basic accountancy and economics, knows that much of the babble on the left and from people like Boris Johnson, much of it doesn't make any kind of sense. It's not an investment to have a new kind of heater. Um, if your old heater delivered the heat that you need um, efficiently uh, at low cost, it might be that you're imposing a negative cost on others through your gas boiler and therefore your pollution cost isn't represented in the cost that you in the price that you pay for the gas and therefore if they hike the price of gas to represent the true polluting cost then it would make sense for you in those circumstances to buy a heat pump but that's a completely separate argument because no one's talking about hiking the price of gas and then letting the market find its own way and letting people decide um, what we're talking about is national spending. And as I say, you don't make the country richer by smashing up the balance sheet. So there's there is there's a big debate um, between Sunak and Johnson as to how quickly they can move towards this net zero. Not, I think, a debate as to whether they should, but how quickly they possibly can and what's involved in doing it. And the contrast in all of this, both in terms of the infrastructure spending for the north of England uh, and for the, the the major cities elsewhere, uh, and also this um, you know, net zero. The big contrast is between this and, and the austerity of 2010, 2015, uh, because there's, aside from some uh, modest things which Harris notes, like for example, requiring departments to find 5% savings, um, the uh, tough 2010, 2015, uh, Osborne, Cameron, Clegg, Danny Alexander um, approach to trying to rein in the, the fiscal deficit, uh, that seems to have been abandoned, and uh, no one's talking about trying to dramatically reduce um, public spending in the short term. I haven't actually checked, and I should have done, uh, what the running fiscal deficit is. Um, of course, the 100, uh, the 179 billion that we hit in 2009, when the the so-called fiscal stabilisers kicked in, your tax revenues collapse because there's a massive post-housing market crash recession. Your welfare payments go up. All your state spending continues, and you end up with 170, I think, nine billion uh, fiscal deficit. The the COVID deficit, I think, was running at two eighty billion um, annually, and the total uh, excessive spend, I think, has been four hundred billion. Now, of course, that's the the the, re- the revenue seem to be rebounding quite fast as Britain goes back to work, or England goes back to work. Scotland still hasn't decided uh, because Nicola Sturgeon hasn't decided. But the the revenues are bouncing back quite quick, and the COVID spending is um, is reducing quite fast. So I haven't looked at the 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 running the predictions for the running month month to month fiscal deficit, but I don't think there's any suggestion that there's going to be a real attempt to do a kind of unnatural ending of overspend uh, and really go for a, a short term austerity approach to spending. I think they're going to allow the economy to rebound and for. Uh, for public spending to reduce and tax revenues to increase in a kind of natural way one of the things that has annoyed uh, the tory right is the is the size of the tax burden the tax burden is higher now than it has been in decades and uh, consequently there's probably not a room a lot not a lot of room for maneuver when it comes to helping out the councils and that includes um the councils that are um uh, tory run there's been some criticism, maybe not enough, actually, um, but there's been some criticism that the, uh, the Conservatives have managed to structure the spending increases to the councils, the, the, the slight increases that have been allowed in some areas. Um, they've managed to structure it such as to favour um, Tory councils, because they've been quite cute about how they've actually drawn up the criteria. But the councils are under huge pressure. Um, and of course, we've also had the, the refusal to uh, continue with the £20 universal credit uplift. And this is because, as I say, we're at the uh, the limit, probably, of what can be achieved through taxation. The uh, the, the way that fiscal and monetary policy, the way that tax and spend policy, the fiscal policy, and the monetary policy fit together so as to maintain the value of the currency and prevent uh, a kind of national insolvency of the kind we faced in the 1970s is not generally understood. Government cannot have a bouncing cheque. Government cheques never bounce. Every single government payment will clear quite happily. Um, through the the Bank of England, but what keeps the whole show on the road is uh, the interest rate and guilt yields and taxation, and that's why um, foreigners will happily hold pounds and redeem them for goods and services in the UK, or will buy government debt, uh, or will keep cash in in deposit accounts that clear ultimately through the Bank of England. Uh, I'm going to like to talk about that in a, in a moment, but uh, so that they, we've reached quite we've reached that probably a limit when it comes to taxation and therefore this spending review on wednesday is probably not going to involve the kind of big increases that some people would like to see to the councils in particular the councils are under huge pressure because they end up um, having to uh, arrange and pay for the care of uh, folk who don't have the resources to pay for their own social care uh, and they end up in uh, in council-run care homes those council-run care homes are about two grand a month roughly the private care homes are nearing twice that, uh, and the the real cost of running a care home is so high that even private providers are charging three and a half grand can quite easily uh, go out of business. So the councils are under massive pressure, and of course, COVID has dramatically increased that because the uh, the costs of care homes go through the roof. The you of all these uh, uh, PPE requirements and uh, and massive staff turnover including staff turnover caused by people who don't want to have vaccinations. Now, the reason why I said at the start that it's not clear whether Harris thinks there's a real um, division in the Cabinet is because there was a leaked story in the Times which he references, um, which is that Johnson and Sunak have secretly agreed that they're going to be reasonably tight on public spending. Uh, so as to, so to facilitate tax cuts, income tax cuts, right before the election, which is a tried and tested uh, Tory election strategy. So the uh, the performance of Johnson um, talking about uh, levelling up and talking about spending and no return to austerity. This, if you look closely, has been accompanied by quite modest sums of money. And uh, Harris notes that uh, it could be that in actual fact there's uh, no. Uh, real division because Johnson's rhetoric doesn't actually have anything underpinning it and, and it's not obvious that he actually wants it to have much underpinning it because as I say this leaked story to the uh, to the times suggests that in actual fact it is a bit of a performance and uh, in reality what they're looking at is a is a tax cut before the next election why that would be needed and how you would structure it I don't know because of course they've uh, They've raised national insurance, and uh, national insurance is a very regressive tax. It's it's very tough on, on ordinary workers, and they've done it to fund um more spending on older folk in care homes. Um, people who have investments in ISAs, individual savings accounts, have not had a tax increase on the dividends from those ISAs. I don't know if I should say the next thing. So, well, I'm I'm committed to candor. You know, it's not that I cannot tell a lie. It's just that I choose not to. Um, I've got some shares in uh, in individual savings accounts, so uh, I won't I won't repeat the noise that I made when I discovered that uh, the dividends from individual savings accounts um, would not be subject to the new taxation. Uh, but it was a noise of of uh, joy, glee, or at least relief. But anyway, so they, they've they've increased taxes on ordinary working folk in order to um, facilitate spending on uh, older folk to avoid seizing their homes to pay for their care uh, when they're when they're um, very frail and get taken into residential care and uh, how exactly they'll structure a tax cut before the election in order to please the people that they've previously angered i don't know but that's the suggestion of the times is that this is what they're uh, they're actually about and therefore the final ambition of the tory party hasn't changed from what it always is which is to you know um, Represent themselves as the responsible party of the homeowners and the taxpayers against the spendthrifts and the welfare recipients of the Labour Party. So the uh, the, the whole division between Johnson and Sunak might be no division at all. So Harris predicts it predicts that on Wednesday what you'll get is small changes that Sunak can thole that he can tolerate um, on things like the minimum wage and on devolution and transport spending, um, Sure Start, skills um, for colleges, spending on colleges uh, in the north of England, that kind of thing. Relatively small sums of money that have, uh, that have high profile in the media reporting. That's the sort of thing that will happen. What you won't get is any commitment to the kind of um, tens of billions that uh, the left wing economists want on things like a Green New Deal, um, that's been nixed by uh, Sunak's Treasury as being simply too expensive. And I, as I said before, and probably it's been costed out as being uh, a massive imposition um, on the national accounts without any commensurate benefit. I am i wouldn't say I was the kind of person that would naturally appear in Sky News Australia to talk about climate change and suggest it doesn't exist at all. But I'm very suspicious, uh, as I'll say in a minute, about what we're doing um, and of course, this is the, the, the week beginning COP26 in Glasgow. I'm very suspicious of what we are what we're signing up for, um, given what the rest of the world seems intent on doing. Now, Harris concludes his article by asking rhetorically whether any of this is going to work. It's worked before. The Tory party has managed to pull off this trick of uh, representing itself as being centrist uh, while remaining centre-right. So the, uh, the, the Red Wall Conservatives who are elected in 2019 will be desperate for real significant sums to be spent. The councils led by Tories will be desperate for additional money. But the, uh, the, the, the Tory um, uh, presentational trick of uh, spending money where it needs to be spent um, in order to... I was just thinking out loud, remember uh, Pulp Fiction when uh, they have to clean the car and Harvey Keitel's character tells him how to give it a good once over and then cover everything with quilts just in case a police officer looks through the window. Um, the suggestion by Harris says that this is pretty much what the uh, the Tory party is going to do before the next election and it might well work because it's worked before despite the fact that uh, there are people like Tory councillors in uh, in difficult uh, seats um, and uh, obviously the MPs from the red wall who'll be desperate for real change. Now so harris admits that it could work but equally it might not work and he thinks it might not work because the uk is like a pyramid on its point um it's uh, susceptible to sudden change you've seen a chaotic pendulum chaotic pendulum seem to be in simple harmonic motion and then suddenly they they go everywhere and they fly around and the suggestion is that the uk because it's so unequal and so unbalanced um strange things happen so you can have uh, the, the housing crash in 2008, or the Brexit vote, or the 2019 um, Tory victory uh, with the 80 seat majority. These things can happen precisely because the UK is like a, a chaotic system where you get um, sensitivity to initial conditions. Because the whole system is sensitive to initial conditions, small changes that you can actually um, See, um, or predict the outcome of these can cause big outcome changes. So it's about the the UK is a bit like a weather system, where even if you had enough sensors, the differences in temperature and pressure between the sensors would mean that you still have a chaotic system. So the uh, the the attempt to actually keep everything keep the show on the road between now and presumably say twenty twenty three, um, that attempt might fail, because the uh, the the UK is uh, the kind of place where things happen there was a german guide dog i seem to remember an Alsatian that managed to kill three owners by leading them in front of uh, trains and buses uh, two owners but maybe maybe it wasn't three but anyway so they they handed the dog to uh, the next owner uh, and didn't tell the owner about uh, whatever the dog's name was marcus so they didn't tell the the owner about marcus's um previous because that might make the owner nervous and that might make marcus nervous and when marcus gets nervous things happen, um, as Private I reported it, and, uh, and the UK is the kind of place where things happen. The UK is skittish, thinks Harris, and therefore you could easily have a situation where this uh, this Tory strategy of trying to talk um, centre and run right, this is what has been often been accused of the Democratic, Democratic Party up until 2016 was always accused of of talking uh, centre-left and running centre-centre-right. And uh, that seems that seems to have ended with Biden-Harris. But, uh, but anyway, so the Tory party's attempt to run um, centre-right but appear centre, um, that might fail. And it might fail because the UK is the kind of place where things happen. I'd add that the US increasingly seems to be the kind of place that things happen, both in 2016 and 2020. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the midterms. In fact, um, thinking out loud, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the midterms as a barometer of what might happen um, in the UK general election, because the two countries have obviously become, uh, in some ways, I think, more similar uh, than they were before, and therefore it'll be interesting to see whether um, the uh, uh, the Biden-Harris shtick um, plays in the in the 2022 midterms, and that might might give us some indication as to what's going to happen in the UK, because it seems as if the West has become united um, because of the COVID response, and we've we've ended up in a situation where liberal democracies all over the West have become um, locked, locked down populations, dependent on COVID relief and driven demented by the measures that the governments consider uh, necessary. So uh, the uh, so the, the, the Harris says that as we as we head into the uh, into the election, this could easily go wrong. And it could go wrong because um, the uh, the UK um, is, is has become uh, a, a rabble. That um, that the, the it's no longer the case that we've got a, a consistent party politics, um, and a public that uh, that aligns behind the politicians. Twenty nineteen demonstrates that. And the mistake that people um, like Johnson and others might make is that they might think that uh, what it was that put them into power. Um, was something that uniquely favoured them rather than something that simply favoured insurgents and incomers and those promising change. And and Harris Harris finishes his piece by saying that um, in the country and in the parliament, um, what you might find is that the people who demanded change and thereby put Johnson and Sunak and others into the positions of power are still there and are going to be looking at uh, the present leadership and uh, subjecting it to exactly the same... Uh, criticism as they did the previous. May did not offer change, Theresa May did not offer change um, and that was exactly what allowed Johnson's star to rise but what might be missed is that exactly the same demand for change could sink the Tory party in the next election because unless Johnson really does deliver for the north, for the councils, for the working class and um, for the folk who have been destroyed by the the Covid pandemic um, then they might find that uh, the forces that put them into position are exactly the ones that will take them out of it now of course the relationship between a chancellor and a prime minister is probably the most important relationship in government and it's an unusual relationship i think i'm right in saying i'm sure i'm right in saying that the the prime minister remains the first lord of the treasury um, the, uh, the, the the business of government is the business of spending, um, tax and spend. Um, government is there to tax and spend in order to secure internal peace and external security to provide a, a police force and a magistracy and an army and a navy um, and increasingly of course it does other things as well but that's what government is. Um, government is the right to demand money for public purposes There's a a school of thought that says that governments arose because thugs realised it was better to farm than it was to uh, maraud. So the the first governors were basically thugs who realised that um, people were much more productive if you didn't completely tyrannise them. Um, And grabbing a share of the action was much better than going to the trouble of possibly getting yourself killed by going elsewhere. So government um, was slowly evolved out of tyranny because um, thugs realised that uh, if farmers were allowed to keep two-thirds of what they produced, the third that they gave you voluntarily was much easier one than possibly getting yourself killed by trying to take stuff from elsewhere. Um, and then you realised that if you could make the farmers passionately in favour of your relatively benign despotism, then they might fight with you. So government would evolve out of that. Government would, would come after um, thuggery, after, uh, after a protection racket was established, um, you could you could then turn it into a government. So so money is is core, money is key. Um, uh, or if you don't like the the expression money, then the goods and services. Because in a non monetized economy, the whole thing becomes terribly clear um, that you've got a limited amount of rice, you've got a limited amount of iron. There's a limited number of hours in the day. So resources are everything. And of course, prime ministers like to uh, deploy resources and use them. And chancellors are like the Royal Corps of Logistics or like the Armourer um, or like the uh, Lloyd George looking at the shell manufacturer in World War One and wondering where it's all coming from. So the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have got the core relationship at the of the central government. And of course, Lawson Thatcher was the, the key demonstration of that. When Margaret Thatcher decided to let Sir Alan Walters give her advice and then... Uh, move along, the, uh, move amongst the, the the city of London's um, decision makers, and lead them to believe that maybe he had the ear of the Prime Minister and that his uh, position was uh, was stronger than that of Lawson, and that maybe they should listen to him uh, on policy rather than Lawson. At that point, Lawson resigned, and uh, pretty much brought down Thatcher. You know, Prime Ministers can't afford to lose chancellors because. A chancellor is in the position of someone who can choose to sacrifice themselves and take you down with them. You remember the uh, the Godfather when I think uh, Al Pacino's character says that the lowest man can bring down the highest. It's just a question of timing, um. And uh, you know, very very small people can cause huge difficulties for for bigger people, um. Depending on position, uh, I suppose it's also similar to what Harris says about the you know, chaotic systems and what ha- what happens in chaotic systems. But uh, if if Sunak chose to resign because he thought that the government's policies were spendthrift and uh, and likely to result in uh, a loss of confidence in the pound and higher interest rates and higher bond yields, um, then Johnson would be finished. He'd be gone. A lot of people don't seem to realise the basics of how the country works in terms of currency. Um, And to... To the credit of the modern monetary theorist people, uh, and you won't often get me to say this, they have actually brought to the the forefront of people's minds exactly what a currency is. Uh, The pound has value because the UK produces things and the UK demands taxes in pounds. And if you take those two things together, you know why the pound has got value, because you need to have pounds to pay your taxes in the UK. Now The UK government then has got an incentive in not allowing the pound to depreciate devalue against other currencies and therefore we run an inflation uh, targeting system that prevents the pound becoming worth less not worthless but worth less against the dollar yen yuan and so on so the british state requires pounds for you to pay your taxes and the british state um, plays host to a whole load of industries that create things for export Um, and uh, foreigners therefore need pounds in order to buy those things and uh, therefore there's a there's a, a value in having pounds because um, they allow you to buy things that this productive economy produces and the people who produce the stuff need the pounds uh, need pounds to to pay their taxes so the, uh, the things like for example uh, government bonds the, the, during the pandemic people have been allowed to get a hold of the idea that uh, the central bank is directly financing the government it isn't the uh, the government um is uh, dependent on the goodwill of the financial markets to have borrowing at low levels because all of the gilts are actually bought um, by the private sector and then the pension funds and so on and then bought from the private sector by the uh, uh, the central bank so-called quantitative easing and government debt in particular is very useful because what it does is it ties up um, money for long periods of time if people take pounds that they could use today to buy things in the UK and possibly cause inflation and they tie them up in a government guilt that matures in 2070. So if you've got a billion pounds right now and you try and spend a billion pounds in jam in Hartlepool, all you'll cause is a massive price uh, spike in jam in Hartlepool because you're not going to get increased jam in Hartlepool for a billion pounds All you're going to get is more highly priced jam. So if somebody spends a billion pounds in the UK today, they're probably going to cause a price spike rather than an increase in output. If they tie up their billion pounds in a 2070 bond, then that money effectively gets cancelled and all the British government has to do is find 1% um, of that billion every year in taxation and hand over uh, in interest payments. So government debt uh, and interest rates as well to a lesser extent helps to control inflation and taxation helps to control inflation. So this relationship between the chancellor and the prime minister isn't a joke. And what the chancellor demands of the prime minister and the rest of the cabinet in terms of meeting spending totals and efficiency gains and cuts and and so on and and austerity, none of that's a joke either. So um, Sunak is the inferior of Johnson, um, structurally, formally. Um, Johnson can sack Sunak, but uh, that's the same as, uh, as saying that uh, the, the chairman of a club with a lot of debt uh, and lots of um, foreign owners and on the board can afford to sack a successful manager. You know, f- yeah, they can. They've got the ability to sack that successful manager. What would then happen after that is a completely separate thing. So the the Sunak-Johnson relationship cannot be um, as difficult as Harris implies much of the time in his article because if it was, something would happen just as it did with Thatcher and Lawson and the thing that would happen would probably not be uh, to Johnson's advantage. Johnson's smart enough to know that Sunak is his rival and Sunak is his his likely replacement Uh, and any dispute uh, about uh, the wisdom of spending large amounts of, of borrowed money um, would play with the Tory base to Sunak's advantage, because the Tory base are exactly the people who are extremely suspicious about all of this um, spending of money, and they tolerate Johnson's act precisely because they don't think it goes any deeper than that. They don't think that in actual fact he'll get he'll, he'll get his own way, nor nor probably is his own way that different from Sunak's way. <clears throat> so this 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 uh, article written by Harris about the. Uh, the two paths that are available to the Tory party. There's really only one path that's available to the Tory party and it's essentially Sunak's path. And the, the real purpose of Harris's article is to draw attention to the difference between Johnson's performance and the reality that both he and Sunak sign up for. When, when Labour asks itself what it is about the Tory party that would um, possibly cause working class people to vote for them, often that question's predicated on the idea that no working class person who correctly understood the world would ever vote Conservative, because the Tory party um, is the enemy of the of the working class. Now, of course, the the, the reason why people like uh, you know uh, Angela Rayner or whoever are, are completely confounded when they look at working class Tory voters is because they consider the Tory party to be scum uh, and straightforwardly uh, dreadful people who would harm ordinary folk. Um, when they could easily choose not to um, and are sometimes motivated by selfishness to keep something for themselves and are other times motivated by malignancy. In other words, there's not even something for themselves in it. Now, of course, that um, labour view um, that either the the working class are just unaware of how dreadful the centre-right is Um, Or alternatively, uh, and more generously, that the working class are unaware of just how sophisticated uh, left-wing theory is, Keynesian theory, modern monetary theory. All of that um, is predicated, as I say, on on, on beliefs that Labour don't examine too closely. It could well be that uh, the reason why the Tory party wins is because the things that the Labour party believe are understood by the working class and disbelieved. So it's not that Labour have have failed to actually get the working class to understand the truth. It's that the working class don't think that what Labour represents is the truth. There's an old saying that it's very difficult to get someone to understand something if their own personal well-being and employment depends on them not understanding it. Uh, Similarly, it might well be the case that the reason why so many people in the Labour Party's uh, new um, graduate majority, um, the reason why they don't understand the, uh, the working class attitude uh, to, the, to the Labour Party and the Tory Party and why some of them would vote Tory. The reason why they don't understand that is because they don't understand why everybody can't have the sinecure that they themselves have got. The, the, the old saying about Hollywood actors are all Democrats precisely because they've got tens of millions of dollars based on nothing more than the shape of their nose. Uh, and because that's always been their reality, they can't understand why uh, the world would be different for anybody else and therefore they they support the democratic party because they genuinely believe that rewards are easily won and uh, if you're a um a deputy head teacher um in, in England getting paid 60 or 65,000 pounds a year uh, without having to teach any students and uh, and you attend labor conference uh, it might well be the case that you can't understand why everybody can't get 65,000 pounds a year for uh, for doing a job that you really enjoy because it doesn't ask very much of you, uh, and you you think yourself to be terribly um, public spirited, uh, because you go in every day and uh, and people thank you for doing what after all is your job and maybe not much of a job, maybe I'm a wee bit too contemptuous, maybe I uh, I underestimate uh, the public sector output, but I worked in the public sector for a long time and I'm absolutely clear in my own mind that the public sector is full. Uh, of people who uh, they don't produce any useful output at all it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference if the job didn't exist and uh, i used to always say that uh, the way to fix britain was to get a hold of the uh, the last um 200 uh, guardian wednesday guardian society supplements every wednesday in the guardian there was a supplement called society which contained all the the jobs um in the public sector and uh, I always thought that if you simply got all the back issues of the Guardian and hunted down every single job and sacked whoever it was that was holding it uh, and didn't replace them then that would uh, would fix Britain. Michael Heseltine when he was at the Department for Environment said that uh, he, he brought in a rule which said that no new member of staff could be brought into the Department for Environment unless he or the Permanent Secretary had okayed the appointment and that held for absolutely everybody right down to the lowliest level and uh, natural wastage would mean that people were leaving all the time and not being replaced and I think at the end of a few years the department was something like a third smaller and still ostensibly the same still producing the same public sector output just with a third fewer staff Um, because Heseltine uh, coming from a background of private enterprise and I think he was a publisher I think despite being dyslexic he'd established a publishing company and that was how he made his money Hesseltine, being a little bit cynical, thought that the Department for Environment had rather too many Adrian moles uh, responsible for monitoring the number of newts in some bypass. Uh, and he decided that probably if these people simply didn't have a job, it wouldn't make any difference. And it turned out he was right. So so the Labour Party doesn't understand why the working class don't vote Labour. Uh, and that's because I suspect the Labour Party is full of people who can't understand why anybody uh, wouldn't vote for an easy life that they themselves have. Um, and that is that's entirely consistent with them um not understanding really that they've got an easy life um a lot of people uh, the, the, you know the the famous um uh, freudian point about uh the uh, the person who avoids the evidence that proves they're wrong already deep down knows they're wrong that doesn't mean that they they don't avoid it you know the person that knows their wife is cheating on them um avoids seeing the things that would prove that the wife is cheating on them but in order to avoid those things they have to already deep down know that the wife is cheating on them but still they avoid the evidence because it's possible to maintain that kind of cognitive dissonance um if, as long as you avoid the direct evidence something similar happens in the in the in the professional working class people talk about the tremendous sacrifices they make for the students and the hard work they do for the students and uh, the, the tremendous amount of, of of hours they put in but the instant you actually uh, are faced with a suggestion about how they could be monitored or controlled or audited or why they might have to go and find another job, then the defensiveness goes off the scale and the, the degree to which they'll fight their corner um, is truly a wonder. Um, and of course, it's because they know that their, their rhetoric doesn't match the reality. They know that they're not setting the huge amounts of homework. They know that they know they're not doing the tremendous amount of of, uh, of over and above the call of duty. Uh, they know that they're spending their time screeching and laughing and joking. And when they're not actually in a clash, the whole place shakes with the sound of them and their pals having a rare old time at the public expense. So the, uh, so the public sector, in my opinion, is full of people who know that they're probably fifth wheels. Uh, but that's entirely consistent with them most of the time telling themselves that they're uh, mission critical. And I suspect that that's now Labour support. I think Labour has the kind of people who Douglas Adams would put in the third craft. And send off into space while the the real thinkers and the real workers stayed back on the planet one of the things that gordon brown and tony blair did was to hand labor to these people and it was interesting if you, if you take a step back and look at what happened just as um the 2004 um eu expansion took place and the labor party um, having got through the 2001 election and the initial promise to only spend what the Tories had planned to spend and therefore they could spend more, just as they began to spend heavily on education in the NHS, creating essentially more highly paid teachers and more highly paid NHS staff, uh, just as that EU expansion uh, really got underway, the, uh, the, the, the new jobs and the new spend in the public sector these jobs, especially the highly paid ones, could really only be taken by people who had uh, qualifications that were straightforwardly relevant in the UK and also probably spoke English uh, to a standard of an indigenous member uh, of the population. So when when Eastern Europe uh, began to move to the UK, by and large, and you, and you can see this right now of course in the in HDV the driver shortage to some extent, but also in the care home crisis as well and in other places, by and large, the folk that were coming to the UK were competing for the remaining labour intensive private sector jobs. So what Labour did was they, uh, they actually consigned the people that once would have been unionised uh, private sector workers uh, and, and labour members, they consigned them to compete with Eastern or Central Eastern Europe. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Harris talks about, you know, Labour's, labour is confounded as to why the, as the wide working class vote uh, for the Tories? Well, in part because the uh, a large slice of the working class uh, that was previously um, unionized private sector, labor supporting, um, was left to deal with the consequence of uh, free movement, um, and especially free movement in an economy which had already exported its manufacturing jobs to China. So what you were left with was all the warehouse driving and distribution jobs and the social care jobs then the retail jobs all the jobs that basically couldn't be exported to china relatively poorly paid um, all of those jobs um, suffered massive uh, downward pressure in wages and we, people denied this for a long time but look at what's happened since we left the european union and since COVID has taken a lot of people out of the labor pool we've seen price increases uh, wage increases so the uh, so the Labour Party, as I say, in government contrived a situation where uh, in an economy that had exported what previously would have been relatively highly paid manufacturing jobs to other parts of the world, that economy then imported people who could only do relatively poorly paid private sector jobs that were remaining. Um, and they then wonder why people vote for the Conservative Party and vote for Brexit. When when talking about public spending and public spending cuts, it's important uh, to note, because so few people know about it, it's important to note just how little council spending is non-discretionary. In Glasgow at the moment, um, the Patrick Harvey has been uh, widely criticised for daring to stand outside the Cooper Institute, uh, which is not far from where I'm sitting, a, li- a library with a, a expensive sandstone building with a complex roof shape um, and uh, it's looking at closure. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite an institution locally and Patrick Harvey is, uh, is joining the protesters against closure uh, but is part of a government um, and indeed a party that in local government voted for the, for the closure or voted for the budget that entails the closure. Uh, one of the things that people don't understand is that local government is essentially um, social work and education. The roads are in a terrible state, Uh, we're closing the libraries, we can't afford to keep open. A lot of the leisure centers they are talking about selling off golf courses. And uh, it's because the situation for local government in the UK is very much like the situation in the US, only worse. In America, there was a massive growth in what are called unfunded federal mandates. In other words, no child left behind. You have to provide services for a kid who's got difficulties. Um, and it's up to you to find the money to do it. But of course, in a society where state and local government um, has to deliver those things, you'll find people who don't have a stake in the society, who don't own a home, will move out to escape the taxation that inevitably follows from these unfunded um, federal mandates. Um, That happens to a lesser extent in uh, the UK because 80% of local authority um, funding comes from central government. But you've still got the same basic issue, which is that uh, if you look at a council budget and you ask yourself how much of it is discretionary, how much of it can the councillors actually control? The answer is very little um, because it's all spent on social work and education. And uh, therefore, you know, the the Tory councillors who regularly suffer the consequences of unpopular national government, people don't vote in local elections based on how the local councillors did. They vote, and the basis of their, their feelings about uh, the national government's performance and a lot of Tory councillors will be putting pressure on the Tory party if they don't want to do something about the red wall they have to do something about the councils because the councils um are held responsible for what central government does because of the label the councillors wear I'm looking at running in the council elections in Glasgow in 2022 I might and I might not but uh, I'm looking at doing it and uh, one of the pitches I'll make is that I won't be beholden on any party to tell the truth about what's going on with the spending, uh, because people people just don't know. They don't know that the national parties uh, dictate what councillors can say, particularly the SNP in Scotland, but they dictate um, what the, the councillors can say. Um, and uh, the, uh, the quid pro quo in the case of uh, the SNP in Scotland or the Tory party in England is that you get the right to a back channel, say, which they have to take seriously. So you promise to keep your mouth shut in public, but you but you insist on the right to speak uh, truth to power in private. And uh, Sunak and Johnson will be getting plenty of representations from the, the Tory councillors um, in England, uh, pointing out that uh, they'll be held responsible for what the national government does um, if, if something isn't done for the councils, because the councils are under-uppers it was the councils that bore the brunt of all the supposed so-called austerity 2010-2015 because unlike departmental budgets it's hard for the councils to resist SUNAC's looking for five percent savings in departmental budgets central government Um, but ministers in cabinet are in quite a strong position to resist those the way they usually run it is through a star chamber system where if you agree your um, budget with the chief secretary of the treasury early on you then join the group of Ministers who get to decide on other people's allocations. So therefore, it suits you to make a a reasonable attempt to settle with the Treasury early um, in order to then be in a position to, you know, have a say in who else gets what uh, and therefore what will be left over next time round and so on. So the, uh, the, the, the system of allocating money to the local authorities is one that puts the local authorities in an invidious position because they don't have the kind of ability to defend themselves that, for example, a professional civil service has against redundancy and thereby a government department has against cuts. When you try and make a civil servant redundant in their 50s, you end up paying them, I think, four times their wages in a one-off payment plus their pension index linked um, as if they... would I think you have to make it up until they're at least 50 or something. But it works out essentially that you can't make civil servants redundant after 50. Um, So it's very, very expensive to try and rein in departmental spending through redundancies. And it's very hard to get ministers to agree to big cuts without them leaking stories to the papers or threatening resignation. It's the local authorities that are in the weak position. Uh, And uh, that's, I think, where uh, the Tory party, the the Tory party of the shires, the Tory party of the activists, the Tory party of the... Theresa May was a council. So, the Tory party of the, of the councillors will have influence on, on Sunak. It will be interesting to see on Wednesday what is done for local government versus what is done for Scotland and uh, the Red Wall. Just to say two things to finish off Harris says that the universal credit cut is going to take money out of local economies. And uh, that is one of those things that uh, is a core belief of the left. Uh, this idea that you, you boost public spending and then you get some of it back in taxation and you get these uh, fiscal multipliers, you get these positive knock-on effects. If um, if you're put in a position where you have to increase um, payments and debt interest um, or if you're put in a position where you have to start paying off um, capital sums of debt through taxation because you can't afford to roll over the debt and new higher interest payments, um, that causes obviously massive reductions in consumption so this idea that there's always a free lunch available through increased public spending um is a, is a core belief of the of the left if you try to talk to somebody about modern monetary theory usually they can't separate it in their mind as a monetary theory from uh, more keynesian style debt finance spending and the supposed uh benefits of that that always exist so the the, the people people on the left have got uh kind of broth of ill-formed beliefs about how the economy works. And one of them is this idea about pitting money into it. As we say in Scotland, the government should pit money into it. Um, If you talk to the average Glaswegian uh, and you talk about, for example, McVitie's biscuit factory shutting in the East End, they will instantly tell you the story about how the the factory will shut. And that will mean that the workers have got less money to spend in the local shops and therefore the local shops will shut. that'll mean there'll be less money spent in the local cash and carry so it's completely stupid to let the factory shop because that's going to have this tremendous knock on cascade and of course there are really really sound economic arguments as to why you shouldn't raise general taxation or raise government debt in order to finance enterprises in order to avoid that supposed cascade but those involve a longer explanation they involve a consideration in the medium term and that leads me on to my final point about Harris. Harris talks about how the UK is the kind of uh, system, uh, so that the UK constitutes a system that is chaotic and, can, and things can happen. So there could easily be uh, a violent reaction to whatever Johnson and Sunak do, and that could sweep them away. Now, the interesting point about that is that that's based on the idea of kind of incoherent thrashing. It's based on the idea that people lash out Um, And there might be some truth in that, because one of the things that's notable is that, as I always say about the 1979 Conservative victory, it wasn't based on the idea that ordinary folk recognised the truth of what Margaret Thatcher said. It was they recognised the falsity or the apparent falsity of what Callaghan and the rest of them said. It was the fact that the 1979 winter of discontent, 78-79, came at the end of five years of utter hell with 26.8% inflation and all the rest of it that caused people to just choose the alternative, you know? You know, would you like the soup or would you like the garlic bread? Well, I had the soup the last time, it was bloody awful, so you better give me the garlic bread. You know, so it wasn't so much a choice, it was the, the a choice to not have the other thing. And uh, and what's interesting about, you know, the uh, the British reaction to uh, bad government is that it's never an exploration of what were the details that produced the bad government. It's always just a, a reaction, it's a raw reaction. Um, so we, we don't want to consider, for example, the COVID response. I watched Jay Bhattacharya, um, the uh, Stanford doctor and professor of epidemiology, who more than a year ago, with others like Gupta of Oxford, signed the so-called Barrington Declaration, telling the world that the COVID response made no sense whatsoever and you're going to kill a lot of people. And I watched him on the Hoover Institution um, broadcast, YouTube broadcast, Um, talking two days ago, talking about what an utter calamity the world has been through and how we've probably spent a lot of money to no good and we've caused a huge amount of harm. Now, what Bhattacharya is saying made as much sense 18 months ago as it does now, but just nobody was listening. Um, And uh, this across the board, whether it's the single-transferable vote system of election uh, or whether it's uh, randomisation of candidates on ballots or whether it's a 2011 alternative vote system, or whether it's the idea that a Green New Deal cannot benefit us if it simply involves smashing up good equipment in order to replace it with more expensive equipment while China, France, Germany, and other countries continue to build build coal-fired power stations. Um, People just can't really be bothered um, thinking through what caused the disaster. What they want is to hold somebody responsible for the disaster. as far as I can see one of the big problems in British politics is precisely the problem of class because the politicians constitute a class and if the politicians agree about something and the public then insist that it's the guilty men uh, uh, during the second world war uh, I think Michael Foote another journalist published an article or a booklet called the guilty men which basically laid into, I think, Chamberlain and others uh, for their conduct in the the pre-war period. And this is something that we seem unable to get past, this idea of guilty men as opposed to bad policies. We never ever want to look at why the policy was a disaster, regardless of who championed it, because that would be too difficult. We simply want to look at the disaster and say who was in office when it happened. And the trouble with that approach is that things never get better if the whole political class is hopeless. Because if the political class is collectively hopeless, and we the people insist on simply finding scapegoats every time there's a disaster, all we get is the same disasters with different scapegoats. Peace.